listening to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from BIV and BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Welcome to the show. A Vancouver company beat out hundreds of startups for a spot in the Techstars Montreal AI Accelerator. CanPage's founder, Olivier Vincent, joins me to talk about that experience as well as his latest venture, Splix. And then after that, BIV's weekly tech panel is on later to discuss Facebook's testimony in front of the House Committee on Financial Services as well as other industry news. Next week, November 6th, we host BIV Talks post-election. It's part of our BIV Talks event series presented by the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. Our panel of experts will examine the implications of the federal election, including impact areas for business. They'll also take a look at what the results mean for British Columbia. Visit BIV.com slash events for more information. You can also join us November 13th as we celebrate BC's top leadership with our annual BC CEO Awards. Six distinguished CEOs will be honored at an awards gala where each recipient will share lessons from their time in leadership. For more information on that, visit BIV.com slash BC CEO awards. More than a 1,000 companies applied to be part of the Techstars Montreal AI Accelerator. Just 10 were selected to be part of its second cohort, and that includes a startup from Vancouver. Olivier Vincent is the CEO and co-founder of Splix. Listeners may recognize him as the founder and former CEO of CanPages. He's also joined us on the show previously as president of Weatherbug, and he joins me today in studio to talk about his latest venture. Olivier, thanks so much for coming on, and congratulations on your acceptance into the program. Well, thank you. Good morning, Haley. Tell me about your latest venture, Splix. What's the company about? So, oh, it's a, it's a company that is very dear to my to my heart. It's uh, in a field that I've been dreaming to work in for years. It's uh, the intersection of music and AI. So the, this world where... Um, Advanced technology is so advanced that it actually disappears behind uh, a beautiful experience. And, uh, and music has always been an important thing in my life as well, like in many people's lives, of course. So the, the goal of Splix is to help people create music. It's, mm. uh, it's resolving a problem which we believe is actually massive and, uh, and very international, which is everybody likes music. Actually, almost everybody loves music. And, and everyone wants to be creative. Everyone likes to be a creator or thinks that they, are, that they are a creator or want to be a creator. But creating music, extremely hard, very, mm. very difficult. It takes years and years of education and music theory. And, and as a result, very few people are any good at it. And so most people never create music. And, uh, uh, but that's where the power of AI gets in the game, you know, allowing you to leapfrog all these years of education and, and uh, music practice and focus on the cool part, you know, the creation of the music, the discovery, the exploration. And uh, that's what Splix is about. So you don't need any skills as a musician. All you need are two ears. You listen to music, you know what you like, and you use an app and you're able to create. It's that simple? That's exactly that. You know, the goal is really to make sure that anyone, even if you had never touched an instrument or never heard about music theory, can start to create within seconds hmm. some, uh, some interesting music. It, it appeals as well uh, to professional musicians. We have a few of them already using the app regularly. And you'll, uh, if you know a lot about music, you'll know maybe a bit more where you're going and you'll be able to export what you created and take it into all your uh, production line and, uh, and master after that. But really the, the, the goal and probably our main ambition is 
bring anybody who's never practiced or created music and let them enjoy the experience. So you've been part of this Techstars cohort now since September was the start of the program, a three-month program. How's it gone so far? It's going well. It's going well. It's pretty intense. You know, like every good, it's an accelerator. And so the goal is really to accelerate. And I must say the, uh, there are several Gs, you know, we experience every day <laughs> into the, 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 the process. Uh, Techstars is a beautiful uh, accelerator created in the U.S. Actually, interestingly, not in Silicon Valley. They're starting in Colorado, where they still are headquartered. Uh, but they now have a number of Techstars programs around the world. And the goal is within usually three months, uh, take a company from different stages of development to a much more advanced stage. So they bring different services and support uh, and encouragement to, to literally accelerate your, your growth. Um, they are worth actually several billion dollars now. So Techstars mm-hmm. has been incredibly successful. So it's, uh, it's why it's so difficult to get in. But they... Um, uh, they selected for the AI program, they selected Canada and Montreal in particular. So it's something I'm sure uh, we are all very proud of, you know, as uh, being Canadian here to, to be part of, of Montreal. So there's 10 companies from all around the world that have all gathered for these three months. And it's going to finish early December with a demo day where we're going to spend uh, a day in front of 900,000 uh, possible investors and partners to present our, our little companies. So it's a lot of wow. fun. What happens after the program? You go through this fairly intense three-month period. Once you're on the other side of it, what do you get back from the Techstars experience once you've finished your demo day? It's a, it's a good, great, great question. Um, definitely, definitely more than one thing. Uh, one of them is you'll be, uh, in three months, you'll probably be uh, like where you would have been through one or two years of normal course. Right, so big acceleration. I, I'm sorry to insist on that word, but that's uh, probably why they chose it. Um, but a, a network is also a very big thing, right? A lot of investors, qualified investors, sophisticated uh, uh, investment companies will gravitate around Techstars because they know that you've been pre-screened and uh, you've been uh, uh, improved in many ways. And so uh, your network is a lot bigger than it would be in the normal course uh, as well. And then, uh, yes, they, they, for example, we, we spend the first uh, two weeks meeting over 70 mentors or potential mentors for us. And, and so each company selects, you know, a subgroup of them and we meet with them every week. And, and these people are, are helping us in many, in many dimensions, um, especially when you create something very new. Um, uh, your past experience don't really help. As a matter of fact, your past experience could even be dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so having these outside views into what you're doing, uh, people that can help but also challenge, you know, are, are I think... Uh, an intrinsic part of, of success in a startup world. And Techstars supplies you with, I mean, I couldn't believe the quality of the people that are in that, uh, in that group of potential mentors. It's an interesting idea. I like that you're focusing on the word acceleration because it's pretty interesting. You've spent years building businesses and have a successful track record of doing that. Here you are going through this experiment of maybe leaping forward several years of growth in a short amount of time. What are some of the things that a company or a leader needs to bring into that experience so that they're able to manage that fast-paced acceleration? Yes, uh Probably a few, a few basic things like you got to be passionate about your business. And I think that's part of their selection process. They want to make sure people are not just there for a hobby. You've got to be very serious about it. Uh, but you also want to bring some ambition. Mm. And that's maybe something, if I, if I dare say, that uh, we sometimes lack a bit in, in Canada, right? The, the vision is not that grand. So over there, you know, they're interested in us if we can be a billion-dollar company. You know, that's where the bar is set out of the gate. So it sounds very arrogant, and it is. But it is uh, you've got to bring, you know, that, uh, that energy and that ambition to your, to your business as well. 
But at the same time, you've got to bring enough humility to know that um, you're in a startup mode. That means you're worth nothing or practically nothing at this stage. Let's say only a few million dollars to, on that road to the, to, the, to the big success. And so you're going to be able to listen. You're going to be able to learn. You're going to be able to modify and adapt yourself. Actually, we see, I understand, frequently at Techstars and other incubators like Y Combinators or 500 Startups, we see a team that get in there with a project and leave with another one because they, uh, you know, they had to adapt and, and pivot, and which is something you often have to do in startup to make sure the market fit is perfect. And so you've got to bring uh, a lot of strength and vision, but flexibility at the same time, mm-hmm. which, by the way, sounds a little schizophrenic. <laughs> and uh, and it is, but it's, it has to be part of the equation. Otherwise, you will have trouble progressing fast. How much competition is there in the space of music meets AI? Are there a lot of companies looking to innovate? So I would say uh, no, uh, because it's still very new. You know, mm-hmm. the whole world of AI and creativity in general is pretty nascent. It's only the last recent years where we've seen enough uh, technology advancement to really allow for some cool things. But I would still say, though, you know, the music world is big and a lot of people have been looking to resolve these problems we are optimizing for at the moment. And so uh, you see more and more company, I would say, companies going into the AI and music space. Most of them would be B2B at the moment, you know, focusing on the enterprise sector, the professional musicians or the, the whole production chain, I would say. Uh, so not too many in the consumer field. But there are a few apps out there that are starting to show up and uh, it's it's good to be not too early that you're the only one because it's usually not a very good sign. Uh, I mean, Google was by far not the first search engine and Facebook was not by far the first social network. So it's good to be not the very first, um, but not too late either. And, and I would think AI and music is at this juncture now where uh, we're going to see more players. Um, do you think a few decades from now, the music landscape will look drastically different? How we listen to music, how we create music, what we even think of as music? It, you know, it's very, very difficult to, to predict. I, I would think yes, because I'm, uh, I do think technology here is very disruptive and will create new things. But it's, uh, it, it can be difficult to predict, right? Try to go back to 1960 and describe Uber. <laughs> right. Good luck. It's uh, yeah. there's so many PCs that were not there. So describing it would be hard. Imagining it would be even a lot harder. So uh, imagining the, the world forward. But we already see a number of shifts in, in music. Uh, the, the most recent shifts are more around the distribution and the, the you know, the, the arrival of Spotify and Apple Music and the, the way you distribute music and produce music and monetize music has entirely been changed. I mean, the business model has been grabbed by the feet and shaken up and down very hard. Uh, and, and I think as a consumer, I find that fantastic. Uh, I consume more music than I ever have. Uh, and it's costing me a lot less than it ever has. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of creating music, there is a lot that is still to be, to be discovered here. You know, I, I think if we look in 10 years... Um, we sometimes get the question, you know, are music creators going to disappear and be replaced by machines? I don't think so. Actually, that, that's, uh, at Splix, we, we're, very, uh, we, we're focusing a lot on making sure the human stays part of the equation. Right? There are a few other apps where you press a button and music comes out and, goodness, it's actually pretty good, you know, every so often. <laughs> but the experience is, you know, you just pressed a button. We, we think the creative process, which is what is so beautiful as a human, is, uh, is something that uh, we want to empower with Splix as opposed to replace, right? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, uh, creativity is, is inherently extremely human. And uh, even though 
at the heart, at the core, I'm pretty convinced that every step of what we think is magical is some chemical process or could be replaced by an algorithm. Mm. Or, or we could create an algorithm that imitates what's happening there. And that's a lot of what we do at Splix is that, right? Is bringing all the music theory, all the things that are becoming uh, uh, in your brain at the time you create. But the creation process itself, the navigation, the exploration, is, uh, is actually something very, very pleasant. And we, we want Splix to be about that. We want to make sure that you not only enjoy the destination, the music you've created, but also enjoy the, the journey. Um, I digress a little bit, but we get more and more of our initial test users say that it's, the experience is very meditative. Hmm. It's very, it puts you in the flow. And I know it surprised me, but it did not surprise my two co-founders. Mm. Uh, James Maxwell and uh, Nicholas Gonzalez-Thomas are both music creators. James is actually a professional composer, still composes on a regular basis. And both of them experience that flow of creating, uh, which is, yes, in many ways, it's very meditative. It's at least relaxing. It's at best very meditative, and so you experience that in uh, you know playing with the uh, with these music creation tools like like Splix. That's interesting. Companies like YouTube have reduced that barrier to entry to showcasing what you create with the world. You're potentially reducing barriers to entry for people who have no musical ability, but they can now create music. And not everyone's going to want to maybe try and make a career out of that, but some people might. What happens? Does do you foresee potentially? more competition for people being able to create music without years and years of lessons. They can share it anywhere. What, what does that landscape look like for talent? Yes, it's, uh, it's very interesting because it's, it's there's many vectors in many directions here. And yeah. as we look at the early use cases of at least our own product right now, it's very wide. Mm-hmm. And it's a good news because that means there is a billion people on the planet that could want to use it tomorrow. It uh, makes it difficult to go to market, by the way, because you've got to pick your battle. But uh, if we are to look at a few use cases, right, there, there is a big use case in social media, mm. uh, maybe for younger generations. You know, the whole TikTok generation spends a lot of time um, uh, creating these little videos and they put a sticker and, they, uh, and they, they select their font and the color scheme. And I mean, if they could put their music in there, meaning their music, the music they created, right? You add an entire new dimension to your ability to communicate with your friends about who, who you are. So th- there is a big consumer play in there. And, and the social media is not just a TikTok, which is maybe 10 to 18 years old. It's, uh, I've got a number of friends that are, you know, from age 20 to age 60 that are active in social media, and they like to display their creativity. Mm. And so adding music to it, which has always been impossible for 99.999% of the people, adding music to that equation, uh, we think is, is very valuable. But then as you go upstream, you find uh, a lot of musicians, you know, all these, uh, maybe amateur musicians, but there is hundreds of millions of what we call prosumers. You know, the prosumers, they, they produce, they're consumers, but they still produce music. Uh, mm-hmm. They produce videos. They, and they always have need for, for, for music there. And so you can help these people as well. And then you can continue going upstream when you look at the professionals that, uh, I mean, there is an, an endless need for original license-free music, uh, whether it's for advertising uh, or media like uh, your company or gaming, or, you know, mm-hmm. there is a need for music everywhere. And so these, these platforms that help generate qualitative music, um, I think have, we're going to see more and more of them. And it goes in all these different directions, from the 10-year-old that wants music for their own, all the way to the, the pro companies that needs to produce them on a, on a regular basis. 
So you're still finishing up this Techstars program. Beyond that, what are some of your short to medium term goals with Splix? Well, we want to ac- to continue accelerating. So um, it, a lot of it, a lot of it is going to market now. So mm. we'll uh, uh, we we're doing good on funding, but it, it's if we want to accelerate, we need a bit more money. So we, there's definitely going to be fundraising, uh, which is a life of pretty much every startup <laughs> uh, at one point or another, if not all the time. But in our case, we're going to enter right after that into some uh, some fundraising phase, uh, and then look at uh, test each of these personas I was talking about. Right, uh, and, and select which ones are maybe the better return or maybe the better potential to start with. Uh, so we're going to need to select all of these, and that's a process that is still going to be a few months long. So the yeah, Techstars is not the end of it. It's uh, you, you gain a lot of momentum. You want to keep that momentum. Olivia, pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Ali. That's Olivier Vincent, CEO and co-founder of Splix. It's time now for our weekly tech panel. Linda Fawkes, CEO of Glue Technology Society, and Owen Ingram, CTO at Easy Market, join me in studio. Thank you both for coming on. Hi, Haley. Hello, hello. Our first topic today is Facebook's testimony with the House Financial Services Committee. Mark Zuckerberg there talking all about Libra, also in the hot seat when it comes to political interference and political ads on the platform. Uh, but first, Linda, overall, what did you think about what Mark Zuckerberg had to say? And how did he come off after hours of testimony? I thought his haircut needs rework. (laughs) That was weird to me. It took me a few hours Uh to get over that. Um, I think he needs to learn to say yes or no uh, and not attempt to answer questions because clearly he's not there to answer questions. He's there to be there to hear what people have to say and let them have their five minutes in the the limelight. Um, I also think that what he's Talking about is important conversation for us developed nations to have. This has to happen. A Libra thing needs to happen. And no, and he's totally right when he says Facebook should not be the people pushing this forward. He's right. This is Zuckbucks. That's how it's um, been presented. It's been cre- wholly created by Facebook till this point, right? Um, but I'm glad he was there starting the conversation off. It, it did get derailed in so, into some good areas that it needed to get derailed into in terms of their, their track record, their privacy policies, et cetera. And I think that overall, it helped um, the average person start to see the real problems with Facebook, like in really clean, simple ways. Lies in advertising, the size of the platform, your dodgy track record, why Why would we ever give you the control over a digital currency? That's crazy talk. It's an important question. Owen, what were some of your takeaways from his testimony? Yeah, so the um, the light stuff aside, I think the real conversation uh, happened about political ads mm-hmm. and misinformation and the responsibility for them as basically, yeah, like a news outlet in some weird capacity um, to make sure that uh, they're not, uh, yeah, just leveraging their huge position uh, for money without thinking about how much disruption they could actually play into the political choices that are made. Yeah, and it is a difficult place they're in. You know, they're they're not a publisher. This is a platform. So anything is free game, clearly. Um, and Facebook needs to be seen to be unbiased, which is why we we see, see them making some of the decisions perhaps they're making. And we want them to be that. Uh, but we seem to be the the recipients of this horrible end of 
human behavior stick, right? Humans are horrible people when they're given the opportunity to do terrible things. And Facebook just amplifies all of that. They're not doing a good job of protecting the users of the platform from that uh, terrible content that is being created. And uh, I, I would like to see them doing more along those lines. And I think it was a really good job that that was brought up quite clearly a number of times in this in this hearing. And I don't think they'll necessarily move to doing anything differently about it, but um, we need to be having the conversation. Yeah, and I think at one point they brought up that he's, um, you know, testifying for the digital age in a larger mm-hmm. sense. And it really comes down to we don't have an ethical framework uh, in place. We don't have ethics uh, matured to, for technology. Um, and, for example, I was forced to take an ethics course in my comp sci degree. And forced. Yeah, it's actually, yeah, you was required, sorry, required to graduate or whatever. Um, but they, uh, it was a joke. It was a total joke. Like it was their first attempt at like trying to have uh, people working in these new digital products to think about how it affects society and what the role is and all that. But it was, it was, a, it was actually just ended up everyone being, you know, completely even more apathetic towards ethical frameworks because it was, it was just so poorly done and, and partly because there's no mature like rules and regulations around if you're a social media platform, you're not allowed to display misinformation for political ads. That should be a rule, but we don't have these rules set in place yet. And so we're trying to catch up now. Um, and unfortunately, these um, politicians, they're not smart at developing ethical frameworks. They're smart at like navigating their political careers. So we actually need some uh, social scientists and people to really think about this and come up with legislature to be able to protect and guide these types of discussions. Exactly. So now we're over to the regulation piece, right? We can't allow Facebook to regulate themselves. They've clearly shown they can't do it no matter how much they want to say they can. Google is off doing their own thing. So we do need, um, perhaps under regulation, we would have the opportunity to have these ethics boards, commissioners, legislation, whatever, be part of the overall framework for the digital age. Absolutely. There's so many things we could do. Uh, We're starting to do that in medical data. Um, But, you know, it's just actually these rules about um, how you report, how you have uh, public documents for, um, you know, uh, certain issues that have come up and the resolutions on them, uh, what they're not allowed to do. This is actually in some ways could, and this is the point of it, the ethical framework shouldn't inhibit um, uh, the tech companies from going forward and producing great productive things for society. Um, we actually want to encourage that. So this is actually unfortunate how this political sphere has been involved in the ethics of uh, Facebook because they don't understand it. They don't want to come to an ethical framework. They're just trying to get their five minutes of fame. And uh, it's a. I hope people get to understand we need to quickly build an ethical framework so that we don't uh, just stifle innovation with uh, all of this negativity towards these tech entrepreneurs. Yeah, and it's an ethical framework for the digital age. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On the topic of Libra, before we move on, is there any chance that we actually see this finally get approval in some way or some form from U.S. regulators at this stage? I know it's been put on pause and they're going to examine it. That's kind of what we know now. But any thoughts on whether this actually gets to move forward at some point? Yeah, when the, uh, when Zuckerberg was talking about how he knows that it, it, he's the last person they want to you know <laughs> proceed with this. But there is a real threat, um, and obviously this was scripted. But you know, there's a threat that China and and, and other um, organizations would uh, would continue on development. So if they just shut it down, then it's actually 
not going to go away. And it, in some ways, it's like the lesser of two evils. You'd rather have Zuckerberg do it than, for example, like an organized criminal organization uh, be the forefront of that development. Um, and that actually got me thinking about that. I would rather have it be someone in, you know, in, in America uh, producing this uh, rather than being a government agency uh, doing this type of work. But I don't know that it needs to be quite that binary. And it's not as it's not a Zuckerberg or, or um, China. It's not just one or the other. We need to have a global conversation about how this is going to fit into all countries around uh, the planet. And the EU has made a pretty firm stand, at least Germany and France have. It's not coming to Germany or France anytime soon. So the chance of Libra happening, I think I think it will happen. I, I, I don't know in what form yet, of course, but um, it's not going to happen in the States. It's not going to happen in Germany and France anytime soon. So will we see it roll out into smaller countries in the continent of Africa, perhaps? Maybe, but the concept of Libra needs to take place somewhere. And maybe there's multiple Libras, right? But this this easing, this banking the unbanked, this making financial transactions around the world easy, making payments more affordable needs to happen. Digitizing the entire banking system needs to happen. It just shouldn't happen um, with a private company that controls 2.2 billion people with one guy mm. at the helm of it. Although a counterpoint to that is just the current situation where you have the founder of Bitcoin, an unknown pseudonym, although I personally think it's the Hal Finney, but anyways, he's uh, passed away from ALS years ago. Um, but th- there's a 1 million Bitcoins, um, you know, uh, sitting in the, uh, in the in, underneath that pseudonym, um, non-accessible, maybe lost. Um, but that's how like shadowy we're currently at is we don't even know the person that invented this. Um, and, Satoshi Yakamoto. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we don't even know... Um, uh, where uh, the roots are, and, and, and you know, like the real the real perspective of where this is heading. Um, so we're we're pretty much at the most anonymous phase of it. Um, hopefully, uh, we start to see real tech companies come out with products that actually survive. Um, but yeah, I don't really it couldn't get much worse than what it currently is. Well, unless we look at um, Facebook's track record, right? I mean, if we just look over at um at Messenger app, and like I said in a podcast previously, the child pornography videos and photos on the New York Times report, 17 million collected, 12 million of those were from the Facebook encrypted messaging app. So Facebook's not anonymous, and they're doing a horrible job under, um, you know, know your client rules at this point, right? So what's going to happen if, if, it, if they go into this gray zone? I think... Um, the ethics are exactly the question, and, and we shouldn't be having this conversation with one company. This needs to be a consortium. Is Libra the consortium to pull that off? Not while Facebook pulls the strings over there. Right. I don't think it is. But the future of Libra, I think it will happen, um, but just not on the rollout that, that they'd planned. 2020 was the rollout date, right? Um, but I think what's also interesting to consider is what happens to the Calibra wallet? What is Facebook going to do with that wallet? Right. So if Libra's not in, a, in play, it, does that wallet turn into a crypto wallet? Does it do something else? Because what we know, Facebook wants the data from the unbanked. They want the data from wallet transactions. They want to see what we're doing over in that realm. And that's uh, the Calibra wallet's whole role, I'm guessing, at Facebook. So does Libra need to drive that? I don't know. Maybe not. I, it was interesting when one of the politicians called uh, called out that the whole point of cryptocurrency is to be anonymous, uh, or one of the big points of it is non- anonymity. 
And uh, the, uh, the statement from Zuckerberg, you know, about knowing the client and it being transparent and all these other things were in direct con- contradiction to that. So it's funny someone <laughs> called him out for that. Uh, he was obviously lying that, it, you know, the whole point of it is to, to be uh, sleuthy and anonymous. Um, yeah, so obviously they're, not, they're still not really getting it, how to approach uh, government with this. Um, and their whole, like, we're going to go ahead anyways type of mentality is just not going to work. They, I think they should really engage in a yeah, consortium of some sort and some standards, and, and then everyone will be a bit more at ease with them going forward. Um, but it can't be a, a battle against the government because I don't think that'll work. Well, it's almost as though this Libra issue has made it very easy for anyone who has any other kind of concern with Facebook to hold up this project, whether it's related to politics, political interference, fake news, whatever. They sort of have their five minutes or however long to hold up this project as they try and pressure Facebook to clear up some of those other issues. Yeah, because we're talking not just about the potential crime uh, as a service entities getting on board this or the money laundering and all the illegal transactions that can happen. But it's also Facebook owning the financial models of how we run our day-to-day lives. That's quite horrifying to a lot of people. And I think once you get people in the wallet, they care more about their wallet than they do about their privacy and and the other things happening on the platform. So It's going to be one to watch. Picking up on the thread of the need for ethical frameworks, Facebook, in the midst of all this, is starting to roll out Facebook News, which is kind of years after there were reports that they were censoring certain kinds of news and who was moderating that and who was showed what kind of news and on and on and on through to political interference and what we get shown on our Facebook feeds. What do you both think this is really about for Facebook? Are they trying to apologize? Are they trying to fix their image? Do they sincerely care about journalism? Are they going to get into licensing and publishing? Where do we see this going? By the way, I haven't, I don't have it yet. It's in beta. I don't know if either of you have seen it. I've just seen reports on it. But I'm curious to to find out where you think it might go. I think it's an apology. I think it's a look, government, we can regulate ourselves. We're reach. you know, we're playing nice in this space. We're including 200 um, news entities, including Breitbart, which whatever. Um, so we are, and we have an independent journalist body selecting the articles you're going to see in that new, under that news tab. Um, so look at us. We don't need you to help us here. We got this one. So I think it's a, it's a, we're growing up message to the government that I'm only can hope falls on deaf ears. Yeah, I hope it is an apology in that way, instead of admitting defeat that they can't regulate themselves, that they do need a professional journalism to be able to take over. Um, but I hope it's actually going to be a great, you know, I hope it's going to be a boon for journalists because uh, that's a huge platform where there's going to be money flowing through those uh, licensing deals. And I would love to see that go into, you know, proper journalism and and, and revive, uh, you know, uh, Revive the notion of, uh, of uh, getting to real information instead of doing the clickbaity thing on, especially on Facebook with all the ads and whatnot. Um, you know, uh, it could, you know, in a very optimistic sense, turn into something good. Yeah, anything that supports real journalism, absolutely. So the millions of dollars flowing out of Facebook's coffers into those of the Washington Post and the LA Times, whoever, uh, is great news. I wonder what it's going to do for um, local newspapers Mm. is this just going to be the big massive um journalism entities on the planet that get to be part of the news tab or are we going to see business in vancouver for instance having a shot at that content i hope that local news doesn't get crushed 
in this new model. Yeah, I would imagine they would go that angle. Um, but I guess it, it really does depend on the licensing and, and, and all the, the money at play there. Yeah, and you'd think the algorithms could pull out who wants to see local news and what they're looking at. I mean, it, it could be an interesting way for local news to be important again. Right. Yeah. We don't have to show local news to anyone outside of their local area, do we? Like we have the technology to reach. Facebook has the technology. They know who we are. <laughs> they this do. It's a perfect platform for that. They know too much. Do you think we see this evolve into Facebook really jumping in with two feet into the news business and producing their own content and their own briefs and summaries of news and getting into that? Or is that not really what Facebook has told us they're interested in? If you can't take over the world currency wise, you know, that's <laughs> another avenue. Um, I know. Just yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, they can't do it. They, they have to stay as a platform. The second they walk over to publisher realm, they are going to be sued all over the place. So they have to be only a platform that is not moderated by Facebook, but is independently moderated. The minute they put their toes into editorial waters, mm. the entire game changes for them. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause they're <clears throat> at this point, just the lifeguards of the, of the content. If they're the actual curators, then they're much more liable for that. What if they convene the News Association, a totally separate body from Facebook? Like they're the doing shares with offices Libra. with Libra. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our final topic is an interesting one. It hasn't been confirmed by Google or Fitbit yet, but there are reports circulating that Google has made a bid to acquire Fitbit. I'm curious why this acquisition might make sense if it turns out to be true, one, and if it turns out to be successful. What does Google want out of a company like Fitbit? So they obviously are trying to continue to broaden their product scope with uh, wearables and whatnot. Um, yeah, I don't think that it's a great idea just because they're, um, the reason that Fitbit's not doing great is because of the very inexpensive and uh, comparable technologies that are coming out of uh, direct to consumer from China. Um, so yeah, it's going to be tricky for them to actually make money of it. But I'm sure that there's some global or bigger play uh, for them to you know express more of their uh, software abilities through more platforms. So it's probably a verticalization uh, you know into the Google world. Yeah, and I think the Wear OS is a pretty decent OS for a watch. They just couldn't find the watch to use the OS. <laughs> Fossil is their biggest uh, uh, hardware creator using the watch OS. And what does it have? Less than 5% market share. So mm -hmm. it's a bit of a joke where uh, Wear OS is not being used. I think it highlights a couple of things. Creating a great smartwatch slash uh, health tracker is hard. I'm wearing my Apple Watch, oh, yeah. and I have the uh, the Series 4 Apple Watch, um, and I love it, but I didn't buy Series 1, 2, or 3 because they just didn't offer what I was interested in. And I don't use it as an extension to my phone as much as I use it as a really clever um, health tracker. Mm. Uh, so doing that is tough. You need to own all the way from the silicone to the software. So Google doesn't have that ability quite yet. And I don't think that Fitbit is their move to move into the Apple Watch space. I think it's just their move into a low-end fitness tracker that's got a large database with, wait, a whole bunch of data in it from millions of users over a long period of time. That's probably pretty enticing, especially as Google is trying hard to get into the healthcare realm and tie up a lot of its... Um, it's uh, letters in its alphabet uh, around healthcare, and and as healthcare becomes the new uh, the new big business that every big tech company is trying to get into, this is an interesting uh, step towards that. But I don't think they're trying to do anything more than that. It doesn't make sense for them. Fitbit doesn't have any amazing hardware technology, right? It's just a fitness tracker, kind of like a smartwatch, but not so great. 
Yeah, I'm excited for these companies that are developing their own silicone, or at least the plants for them, using the ARM chips. So they <clears throat> they can actually get going with some more interesting uh, tech on your watch than just you know buzzing you even more uh, with notifications. Um, so hopefully we'll see something that's compelling enough for you know people um, that are like me don't really like things on their wrists. Uh, if there's something really neat, maybe it tracks my blood sugar or something like that. I know Google's been working on those contact lenses forever. Um, that would be probably the tipping point for me to get in get in get a version of it. Yeah, I haven't worn a watch in 25 years <laughs> until this one, and so it was a big deal for yeah. me to physically put something on my wrist, and it was the sleep tracker. Okay, yeah, me. I was yeah, like, yeah. oh, the elusive good night sleep. I'm gonna see if this cracks that. Not for me. It's starting to, okay. but you're right. There needs to be a tipping point of some kind. But now what we look at with Fitbit, there's all the user, the Fitbit users out there who are freaking out that Google's now going to have access to their data potentially. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. So when we have these other health trackers coming out of China or whoever's going to start manufacturing the hardware, it's basically only going to run Wear OS or maybe I think Samsung has their own operating system. But we now are onto this really sensitive health tracking data piece yeah. that we that as a user, you want to make sure whoever's tracking that data and the apps allowed to use the data that's being tracked are locked down. Because we have now this real migration from our daily life over into our digital health realm, which can easily move towards insurance and what employers can see and all sorts of scary areas in this, in this data security piece. So to have Google owning your data, I'm sure a lot of people are going to be quite uncomfortable with that. Yeah, especially that comes in, into play with the differences of uh, <clears throat> Canada versus the U.S. on our medical system, uh, because we do have, you know, our own medical system here where we pay for it, uh, you know, um, and so because of that, we definitely should be uh, allowed to have full control over what kind of health data um, we have uh, getting recorded by Google and make sure that that's available to our physicians. Um, but in America, I guess, you know, it's a different story because it's private, Um but yeah, you're right. It's actually pretty sensitive data, especially if they do get deeper into the tech with, um, you know, knowing that you're a diabetic or other things, maybe maybe if you have a very low heart rate or a certain ages and they can indicate, you know, could indicate other health problems. Um, keep, that's very important data that we need to have an ethical framework around as well. Yeah. Um, and the fact that Canada still doesn't have, you know, any sort of centralization of their medical records is insane because we all pay for that. Every time you go to a doctor, you redo all those tests. So, um, yeah, I'd love to see a system uh, at play that maybe we can cooperate with Google. But there needs to be some rules and regulations on what they're allowed to collect, what they're not allowed to give to third parties or even analyze themselves. Um, and actually, Canada is not super far off from our uh, what is the Federal Ethics Committee for Medical Data. Um, they're starting to get going on that. Um, but yeah, we're still very far away from being able to interoperable work with a third party. Yeah. And here I am as a Canadian user of an Apple watch using a sleep app created in the Netherlands. Um, and so my dad is all over the world there and I'm, and I'm very aware that I'm sharing my health data in that way with many entities around the world, but it's not, we're not far off creating a health score. Right? right. Like when we start tracking medication and our success at taking medications and our ability to stay healthy and lose weight and not smoke or be active, whatever, those health scores could become as creepy and important as the Sesame Credit over in China. Right. right? So so how does this 
where's the ethical framework that's going to allow us to lock this down and allow users, um, give users the information they need to know what they're, when they're sharing, like I am, what that actually means for you. Because right. we can't just always rely on the Canadian uh, framework to protect us is when we are obviously opting out, as I am. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, there's, there's so much interesting things we could do with that, all these medical tech that's coming out um, if we play it right. I, I do worry that everything's going to be shut down on the first breach because of um, just because of like a fear and kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater because there's so much good we could do by predicting health outcomes. And we need the data, right? We need the AI to get smart. So we need the data. We, yeah. we need to, we really need our non-Chinese AI to grow and, yeah. and get smart. While data is required to create an AI with any intelligence, um, well, as long as that's a thing, we need to be adding to that pool of data in some sort of safe and anonymized way. Um, but I, I don't think that we'll end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater because if anything, Facebook has shown us, give us something for free, Google's shown us, give, us, give the consumer something for free that adds some sort of value to their life and they will give you everything back. Right. For nothing, right? So that's what we've done when we've entered into this um, pact with the digital age companies. You can have all my data my entire life. Just let me have free email. Right. Right? Let me just talk to my grandmother once in a while um, using Facebook or We post sell out photos. pretty easily, yeah. We sell out so easily. So I think that that we want to protect ourselves from that desire to yeah. get stuff for free and protect ourselves. It would be nice to have a combo. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think that opting in, well, probably along those lines of thinking, we'll, we'll likely opt in pretty quickly if um, the data would be available uh, for us to like actually um, predict health outcomes. Uh, it would be such a blockbuster for the Canadian health system, you know, our largest expenditure on our budgets, um, to be able to reduce, prevent, uh, you know, bad health outcomes. And the data is so rich. I mean, if you track yeah. all these different blood test points and all the different medications and problems you've had throughout your life, I mean, it's a perfect time series of multiple events that can be correlated together in a, in a data model. It's perfect for predicting. So would monetizing our data give us any ability, any desire to participate more? If, if we had our own money-making engine in our controlling our data? Yeah, it really, if it's done right, anonymized data is anonymized. They'll never know it's you. And so you just put it into the pool of data and then you get all of the benefits of saying, you know, when you, there's a like high likelihood when you turn 45, you should be tested for glaucoma because you had all these other issues um, and you have this family history. Like that should be basic. That should be already in place. The doctor shouldn't have to be guessing. I shouldn't have to be following symptoms. It should be predictive i mean especially as the ai gets smarter it's going to be amazing what this data is going to tell us yeah it's really amazing it's something that we're going to look back in a f hopefully a few years and say why didn't we do this 20 years ago it's just it's insane yeah. yeah a lot to look forward to but i like that this conversation also focused on ethical frameworks because that's something too it's clear we need to also look forward to as we see these progressions great conversation thank you both for coming in thank you for having Thanks, me Katie. That's Owen Ingram, CTO at Easy Market, and Linda Faucus, CEO of Glue Technology Society. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or on Stitcher. All of our episodes are also available to be listened to at BIV.com audio. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. 